Hi, I'm Laura Parkin, and this is a new show, Cape Climate, where we talk to some amazing people doing great climate work here on Cape Cod. And occasionally we'll learn how we can do our bit. And of course, all of this is in service of our existential dread. Thank you for joining me. Today, I'm going to talk to some of the leaders behind the Herring River Restoration Project. It's an effort to restore a badly degraded estuary in Wellfleet and Truro. We'll get a sense of the work being done, how this project came to be, and learn about the amazing benefits that the restoration will deliver to people and nature. I'm going to start by talking to Krista Drew, Executive Director of Friends of Herring River, the nonprofit that catalyzed this effort 20 years ago. Hi, Krista. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Happy to be here, and thanks for the opportunity. Could you start by walking us through the project? So, yes, the Herring River Restoration Project has been about 20 years in the making, really began with a bunch of concerned residents and scientists coming together to conduct research on the Herring River and the entire Herring River estuary, which is about 1,100 acres. And it took many years to conduct the research, gather the data, begin monitoring and modeling, build the case for this restoration, which is really to overturn loss of habitat, a decrease in the native salt marsh, and a decline in water quality in a variety of ways. Fast forward to March 2023, which was the groundbreaking, the beginning of the construction phase one for the Herring River Restoration Project here in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. The purpose of the restoration is really to remove multiple tidal restrictions, human-made restrictions that have served as an impediment on the natural tidal flow. The original dike was put in almost just over 100 years ago? Yes, that's correct, yeah. Laura. Yeah, 1909. And although it had some gate openings to allow some water to flow through, it was at a much less volume than it had historically and naturally been. The project really at this point is focused on installing a couple of the largest components of the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So that dike that that was installed in 1909, was upgraded in 1976, and now is going to be replaced with a temporary bypass bridge and then a permanent bridge with nine gates in it that are adjustable and adaptable for water flow. This project, we should mention, is really co-owned by the town of Wellfleet and the National Park Service. Beautiful collaboration, as well as you know many other collaborators who are doing design work and engineer, construction, a whole slew of activities. And so the National Park Service just released today their press release, actually, for the construction of the water control structure at Mill Creek which runs into the Herring River. And then also in terms of town work happening, there will be elevation of low-lying roads. So portions of several roads in town of Wellfleet, which have already been kind of struggling uh, with with high water levels. And there will be replacement of of six culverts as well. So traditional round culverts Mm -hmm. that are kind of small into much larger box culverts that will allow a greater passage of water as well as additional herring passage as well. Where's the money coming from for all of this? The majority of the money is coming from NOAA, so that's, of course, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, through the Biden Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. They have just put $14.69 million uh, grant towards this project that now resides with the town of Wellfleet. The Massachusetts Division of Ecological Restoration has both capital and ARPA funding, uh, both with the town and with Friends of Herring River, our organization, and we, we manage that the grant out to the contractors. There's also funding from 
United States Department of Agricultural and Natural Resource Conservation Services has been a phenomenal partner, both in final design work and funding uh, the lion's share of that Mill Creek water control structure I just mentioned. National Park Foundation, affiliated with National Park Service, has also put forth significant dollars. There's a lot of partners. A lot of partners. How many How many partners would you count at this point? So, I mean, in terms of funders, there's been at least nine. Essentially state and go- federal government agencies. That's right. Yeah, there, okay, cool. there hasn't been too much private or philanthropic. And I know that Friends of Herring Rivers, you raise funds for some of your activities. But other than that, it's been federal and state money. So the timing was incredible. Shovel ready just when the infrastructure bill passed. Yes. And there was some indication that that would be necessary, that there needed to be a policy window, as it's called. So things did align, gratefully so. And so there's a total of about $70 million has been Mm -hmm. committed. So this is the largest restoration, I understand, in New England on the East Coast. Good question. (laughs) It's big. It's It's big. big. It's definitely one of the largest in the Northeast, if not the largest, one of the largest in the country. Of course, restoration efforts are happening all around the world as folks, you know, really realize the benefit of of coastal uh, and and climate resiliency. And that's actually part of the Friends Larger Vision, isn't it? Absolutely. So the Friends were, you know, really born out of uh, the necessity to catalyze community acquire grant funding and then manage that in a variety of ways as well as provide you know technical expertise and facilitation and all of that but we're now really moving also into documenting what's happening with this specific project and, and storing the data and making that more accessible all towards that larger goal of helping to catalyze restoration projects elsewhere so it doesn't take everyone 10 years to get on their way and be shovel ready that is phenomenal. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate this, Krista. I know how busy you are. Yeah, thank you, Laura. So I'm here with Wes Stinson from Environmental Partners, and you're overseeing the construction of the bridge for the Herring River Restoration Project. Correct. We've been brought on by the town of Wellesley to act as owner's project representative for the construction of the Chequesset Neck River Bridge and some other uh, project elements, including the low-lying roads. Thank you so much for your time today. Mm -hmm. I know there's a lot going on. I think you've got a milestone coming up. So we are currently constructing the temporary bridge, which is going to allow vehicular and pedestrian access to Griffins Island during construction of the new control structure and bridge that's going to cross the Heron River. This is ongoing right now. We hope early 2024, we'll see that up and running. And then what, what happens after the temporary bridge is open? So once the temporary bridge is open, which will be controlled by uh, stoplights on either side, it's going to be a one-way bridge. Mm-hmm. So to listeners out there, if you're coming down to Griffins Island or Great Island, just know that there will be a stoplight there. Once that is up and running, then the contractor is going to move their equipment and operations onto the existing dike okay. and to begin installation from the south side of the river, which is as you're approaching the bridge from town, first side that you reach there, we're going to start construction from the south, moving to the north. And that's going to take much of the next two years. So that's construction 2024, 2025, spring of 2025. We're looking to, to hopefully be nearing completion. So I know you've committed to keeping the water flowing so that the fish can still migrate. How are you doing that? During the current construction and the, the constructing the temporary bridge been able to utilize the existing culverts that are in place there on the dike and in, includes flip-flopping work from, you know, one side to the other to maintain flow through one of at least one or multiple or actually all three of the culverts there. And then when we move on to the dike, we are going to begin from the south, like I was saying, moving north 
And while we're on that southern kind of abutment for the, the, the new permanent bridge, still going to be utilizing those three existing culverts for as much as possible. And then once we move to the, the next abutment, moving our way north across the river, the contractor is going to devise a plan to, to start running water through the newly constructed southern abutment of the permanent bridge while mm-hmm. mimicking you know, the flow that we are currently seeing through the existing culverts, if that makes sense. It does. Thank you. Is the fox still hanging around? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I was there the morning he took the coffee, the Dunkin' Donuts cup. It's like everybody does run on Dunkin'. <laughs> and I, you've also been on the lookout, I understand, for the turtles and everything else. Yep. So there's a uh, monitoring plan. So the Oxbow out of Rhode Island uh, has some kernel monitoring going on and the contractor on site um, maintains a log and, you know, of any turtle activity and we notify them and, and try to keep try to keep them safe and out of our job site so that we do our job. And then when we're done, we can uh, let them have it back. That's great. That's mm-hmm. great. I think one of the most exciting aspects of this project is the just the amount of stakeholders that have come together to really get it done. It's it's an ambitious project in terms of in terms of wetlands restoration and the various funders. We have the uh, USDA, the Natural Resource Conservation Service. We have the Mass Department of Ecological Restoration. We have NOAA. And um, obviously the town of Wellfleet and the National Park Park Service, in addition to the the residents of the Outer Cape, Wellfleet, Truro. It's just really impressive to see a project of this scale get going. It's exciting. A long time in the making, Mm -hmm. but really exciting to see it happening. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Wes. You're welcome. Take care. Next, I'm going to talk a little history with Beth Chapman, one of the original board members at Friends of Herring River. Hi, Beth. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, I think you were just saying you're the one one original board member left at Friends of Herring River. Yes. And just just for everybody else, Friends of Herring River is the nonprofit that was started by this small group of people almost 20 years ago. Yes, scientists. Scientists to drive this project. And I think it's fair to say that without this group, without you, without your compatriots, the project would not have happened. How did you get involved and how did you guys push this forward? It's really very interesting because the technical people, the scientists, got together almost 20 years ago in order to decide if it could be done. And when they decided that, yes, it could be done in their scientific opinion, they said, well, we can't do it without a lot of money. And so we need a nonprofit to be able to accept the grants and to write the grants and write the permits. So that became the function of the Friends of Herring River. And when all of this was happening 20 years ago, there was an article that basically intimated something that was very incorrect in that when the dike was taken down, all the property stakeholders would be flooded. Ah. And I was a stakeholder. My family had built a house immediately across the street from the Boundbrook Subbasin. So I immediately called John Portnoy, who is legendary in having advocated for this since he started with the National Park. And he said, oh, never happened here. He said, Your, the roadway is too high. Well, in fact, that's one of the roadways that is in the schedule to be raised. Okay. <laughs> it, is, it is fine, but maybe not for a 100-year storm. Gotcha. When I talked to John Portnoy, he said, no problems at all. And I got interested and I said, John, there is a much greater need for information than the committee is putting out. And so he said, well, come to the committee and tell them that. <laughs> so 
I waltzed into this meeting of scientists. Yeah, they yeah. gave me a, a short time to speak. And I said, and I think that you really need to be giving more information to the community because right now, rumors like there's going to be a flood are rife and we need to change that. This is 20 years ago. I was about to yeah, say, this what is year 20 was years this? Ago. Yeah, what year was this? And that's always been an issue because people have gotten it wrong. But I think it's such an important point, right? You needed public support. You had to, to deal with the misinformation, but you also had to push everything over the line. Yes. Never would have happened if you hadn't brought people on board. Well, I think of it in terms of the vast number of public programs that we held. And we got somewhat tired of just having public programs that talk the nuts and bolts. Mm -hmm. And so we started getting creative about, we did one on Wellfleet Cooks, and it was all the food that came from the Herring River, starting with the indigenous people. We did something about all the paintings that Edward Hopper has painted that show the estuary. And then it was really very interesting because as it transpired, we were the public voice of the project. And we really made an effort to have an electronic newsletter. We had the public meetings. We did uh, a major effort to find out what the opinions were in the community. And we went to, I think, 36 thought leaders in the community. So who was in the original group? How, how many people was it? It was about 10. I 10? think it was 10. And who was the ringleader? That was a man named Don Palladino, mm -hmm. who had been asked by Gary Joseph, who was on the technical team representing Wellfleet. And those two men uh, have done amazing things for Wellfleet. They were both active while Gary starting the Conservation Trust in Wellfleet. Mm -hmm. And then he asked Don Palladino to be president and then told Gary told Don Palladino about my presence at one of the meetings and so I was asked to join the board primarily from a communications background that That's I had. That's great because everybody else yeah. was a scientist right. and then Don's background was the army wasn't it? And Army Corps of Engineers and engineering. Oh, right, right. And so but I have to tell you, the only reason I agreed to be on the board is because Don Palladino was such an incredibly gifted leader. Mm -hmm. We had an attorney. We had people from the shellfish mm -hmm. arena. We had scientists. We had Barbara Benessel and John Portnoy and John Reel, who were all scientists and very willing to dedicate a lot of time to this. And we had two attorneys, I think, at the time, and and, and Gary, who came from the community. And it was a, an amazing board, and we got a lot done. Um, yeah, that's very clear, because... Look at, look at the groundbreaking. I know, I know. <laughs> so I'm especially grateful to the national and regional and state organizations that have stuck with us all this time. They've been on the original Can We Do It? They're now figuring out the adaptive management that's going to be required because you can do the best science in the world and then you have to test it. What would you tell another community to do if they had a salt marsh that needed restoration? I would say create a friends group and understand that it's a lot of hard work and it's extremely rewarding. Thank you so much for all this time and all these stories and I am very excited to go out there and look at the progress on the river with you. Oh, I'd love it. Thank That'd you. Be great. Thank you. Now let's dive into the ecology of the restoration so we can really understand the benefits. John Portnoy has a PhD in marine ecology and spent 30 years as an ecologist at the National Park Service. His research focuses on the effects of tidal restrictions on salt marshes, including the Herring River. John is a founding member of the Friends of Herring River. John, thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. Glad to be here. I'll start with the rationale for, well, maybe a little before the rationale of, of the actual diking of the river in 1908. I think it's important to realize that this marsh, Herring River, 
marshes have been developing over the last 2,000 years, accumulating sediment, growing salt marsh grasses, serving as a nursery for fish, performing all the good functions the salt marshes do undisturbed for 2,000 years. We have a very productive system, not just for plants and animals, but also for people, including Native Americans, for thousands of years. However, the Europeans who settled here weren't very careful in the way they managed natural resources and basically depleted all sort of those attributes that they valued so much. Along with this theme of depletion of resources, a good example is that people got greedy with respect to the herring run. The town wanted more and more money and they allowed the successful bidders to take too many fish. And so the run was already collapsing by the late 1800s. And in fact, by that point, most of the outer cave was depopulated. People had moved away because there was so little left to do out here. Except they realized they, it was still a beautiful landscape with salt water, fresh water. It was a beautiful place for, for vacationing. And so the, the local, the town fathers, as they were called, and local entrepreneurs decided to promote the budding tourist industry. The problem with vacationing on Cape Cod was the occasional mosquito biting mosquitoes, and sometimes they were really abundant. I suspect that's what promoted the alterations of the wetlands out here was this desire to try to stimulate the tourist industry by controlling the mosquito pest. First sign that things didn't go according to plan. Nothing in the annual report that say we failed. Okay. <laughs> if there's just all these expenditures for additional mosquito control, oh, way beyond, so way beyond, like an order of magnitude greater than what they were spending before. So how did you start your research on the Herring River? It was somewhat accidental. The dike that's at Chickasinek Road now is the first one. It was rebuilt in 19... In the mid-1970s, early 1970s, and it was rebuilt because the old one was leaking badly. But when it was rebuilt, it was, it was a very controversial decision. Uh, many people in town didn't want a new dike. They wanted a bridge like we're getting today. Mm -hmm. National Park Service was contacted by the State Attorney General's office to see if we could repeat the measurements that were undertaken by APCC that document water levels and salinities so they, they could determine whether or not the town was complying with the of condition. They asked the seashore superintendent to have the park collect the data. And I, I was the only scientist in the park. And actually working for the regional office, I was told to go out and take some water level measurements, which to be done right can't just be done, you know, like once. It has to be a full tidal cycle. So I was out there a lot. And uh, I was out there one day with my boss doing a salinity profile from the dike to uh, a well past by toss. And we saw thousands of dead eels flying on the bottom of the stream. And they were uh, adult eels eels and lots of eels crawling up onto the bank, moribund, you know, dying eels on the stream bottom. There were literally thousands oh of eels. God. They had um, the only signs of disease or stress were they had lesions on their skin. And to make a long story short, we had we did uh, investigate the eel kill with the Gate Division of Marine Fisheries. We brought dying eels or dead eels to path fish pathologists at URI and, and the Marine Biological Lab in Woodsole. And they didn't send any any signs of disease except opportunistic infections of bacteria and they, they just felt that these fish were severely stressed. So we went back to Herring River and did some water quality measurements and found extremely low pH, really high acidity, something that, you know, really bizarre numbers for, uh, for an estuary. The, the pH was so low, it was coagulating their, the eel's mucus coat that protects them from infection. But that's just one of Herring River's problems. Okay. By the early 80s, we were observing 
massive kills of uh, juvenile river herring as they emigrated from the kettle ponds toward Cape Cod Bay. And uh, started following water chemistry a little more closely and discovered that there were oxygen depletions every summer in the Herring River. Situation's a little better now uh, because the river's not channelized, it hasn't been channelized since the 1980s. Another problem is, when I mentioned the change in vegetation, saltmarsh grass is extremely productive. They fix carbon, uh, capture carbon dioxide from the air faster than just about any habitat on Earth. So there's that loss in, in carbon storage. Another problem in the Herring River is the long-standing closure of shellfish beds just downstream of the structure due to fecal coliform contamination. There are many problems. Portions of the Herring River uh, remain flooded with freshwater wetland plants. And a lot of these freshwater wetlands and plants, things like cattail and invasive phragmites emit a lot of methane, which is a very potent greenhouse mm -hmm. gas. There's another problem in that when you drain a marsh, then you get that air entry into the peat that uh, we talked about in terms of acid generation. But also it increases the rate of decomposition because drainage allows air into the peat and oxygen. Bacteria can grow much better on oxygen than they can on other things like sulfate. So the rate of decomposition is much greater when when there's when the peat is aerated. That in addition to another factor, which is the removal of water from salt, salt marsh peat, causes the peat to collapse. Right. But this marsh, our hearing river marshes, because of those factors and the lack of tides to bring in sediment from the marine mm -hmm. side, have subsided to the point where there most of Herring River is about a meter below where it should be given modern sea level. Can we move on to the good news? Like, what will happen when the tidal flows are restored? Yeah, well, I mentioned the acidity problem is going to go away because for right. two reasons. Seawater is, is better buffered. I know you hear a lot about acidification of the ocean, but in general, seawater is much better buffered in terms of pH than fresh water. So you have the, you'll have seawater back on there, which is a reference, neutral pH is 7, seawater is pH 8.2. So that's going to help the acidity, but more important factor is we're going to resaturate this acidic peat with water, any kind of water, in this case seawater, and that's going to reverse the chemistry that allowed that allowed these sulfur minerals to oxidize into right. sulfuric acid. So it's just basically, it's a good way to think about it, you just reverse the chemistry. So mm -hmm. again, those, the sulfur will be stored for a very long time and stable in a stable way within the peat. Also, fecal coliform problems should greatly improve. Just looking at the predicted dilution factors of restoring Tide. I think the results of the hydrodynamic modeling that's been done show that right around the example of the mouth of the river, the dilution factor goes up about tenfold with full restoration. And, you know, we'll have to see. We'll wait and see. But it's likely that the shellfish beds that are closed today could be reopened. The river herring have lots of problems more than just local to Herring River. But some recent work showed that just that dike structure, Chickasset Neck, blocks half of the spawners from getting upstream. So that opening that has provided a lot more. Not in replacing the culverts, right? And the culverts upstream. And sort of a more basic level, we're going to see the restoration of native plants, salt marsh plants and animals. And a good example of what could happen is Duck Harbor. You don't mm -hmm. have to go very far to see. That's been shockingly fast. It's been shocking. It's been shockingly fast to the scientists. You see that many, that many plants and uh, things like the seed blight and the uh, uh, marine orac and they're coming to seed and there's um, spartina patens, which is the salt hay. 
the patches of that that look so vigorous up there. And then the animals, there's so much animals that have already colonized across, coming somehow entering with the overwashes. You know, people have been seeing mummachogs up there which are really important mosquito predators. Mm. We've been seeing them for a couple of years. And then just a few days ago, we observed grass shrimp, thousands and thousands of grass shrimp in the creek. It's important to realize that Duck Harbor restoration, I mean, that's accidental or natural event, but it's related to the Herring River restoration. And the Duck Harbor is, is a sub-basin of the Herring mm-hmm. River to be restored, but it wasn't supposed to happen this soon. <laughs> Right. Um, and so now the hope is that the overall restoration of the system can proceed fast enough so that we can get regular tile flooding and drainage twice a day up in Duck Harbor to sustain what's already started. That's which, great. Which is pretty spectacular. How long for the vegetation to change? Because that's really where the big carbon capture comes in and then the decrease of the methane. Right. Well, that that can be really rapid. And in this case, it depends on how fast we can restore tides. The project has always been framed as incremental. Mm-hmm. And there are good, re- good ecological reasons for that. Besides the fact that, you know, you never can be 100% sure in your model predictions and you want to proceed in a way that you can collect data to better calibrate your models and make them better and better Mm -hmm. so you don't have some unhappy unforeseen impacts. But in places where you can restore the seawater and the elevations are appropriate, you don't have too much subsidence, restoration of salt marsh grasses can be just like on two to three years. So what's going to happen to the vegetation that's currently there? The plan is to remove the, the, the shrubs and trees that invaded the floodplain, remove them before they're killed by salt water. What other good things are going to happen when the tide is restored? Well, as far as the oxygen problem goes, one factor is you have 1,100 acres of loaded organic matter up there with a high oxygen demand. When it gets warm, oxygen's depleted. Uh, the other factor is the block tides. You've blocked the daily infusion of oxygen-saturated Cape Cod Bay water. These wetlands in a natural state would, yeah, they'd have lots of organic matter in the would chew up the oxygen, but twice a day the tide would come in, right? And the seawater seawater was practically saturated with oxygen, so that's how they functioned, and that's why there aren't so many aquatic animals could live up there. Otherwise, you know, it behaved like Herring River. There would be almost nothing as, as there was mm-hmm. as there is even today. There's very few species up, upstream of the dock compared to below this thing. So that's the oxygen thing should be improved incrementally as fast as the, the new bridge can be opened. In terms of methane production, methane is a gas produced in very anaerobic soils in a freshwater environment. In salt marshes, there's uh, bacteria have a better way to break down organic matter than by the mechanism by which methane is produced. So they, they switch from using carbon dioxide and producing methane to using sulfate and releasing sulfide. So salt marshes in general produce very little methane. So we're going to have, and right now, Herring River is producing a lot of methane. Um, and the U.S. Geological Survey guys down at Woods Hole have been studying that for quite a few years. That's largely going to go away to the extent the seawater is and salt marshes restored in the system. And the mosquitoes, an outcome, uh, an outcome that everyone is very concerned about, just take a walk across the floodplain at Duck Harbor, and you'll, as long as there's any water, any, any water on the surface, you will see killifish, uh, fun, mama chugs. Now, there's another name for them. It's mm-hmm. the salt, salt marsh, salt marsh killifish. Fish. And they are in the creek all the time. And then when the water is above the creek level on the marsh surface, they're in all these little puddles and they are consuming, well, organic matter. And when they find them, they're eating mosquito. They're really important mosquito predators. 
perpetrators of Lardy and QP. So we'll have a much better and natural mosquito control than we have right now. So I've read, forget in which documentation, but they referred to this project as a potential blue carbon superstar. Why blue carbon superstar? Well, because it's got everything. Right now, it's a net source of atmospheric carbon. It will be a sink again. Already, all the science that's been developed around here is being put to use elsewhere. Oh, right. I mean, yeah. lots of people that are involved, and that's this work that's being done by Kevin Kroger and his team at USGS is really cutting edge, and it's uh, they're working all over the place, and they're putting this in a global context. Herring River, the other reason for Herring River possibly being a superstar is its size mm-hmm. relative, at least in a in a New England context, it's a really big system. And what does it feel like now to, to actually look at the project happening and the bridge being built? Oh, it's really, it's getting, it's really exciting to see. Looking forward to seeing the time come in. <laughs> and out. John, thank you so much. You're welcome. Dale Rowe is now leading Friends of Herring River through this new phase of construction and into the future. Dale, you joined the board of Friends of Herring River in 2018 and became chair in 2021. What drew you to this project? Well, my life had shifted. I was looking to repurpose. I had had a very rewarding career that I chose to end because my grandchildren were born. And I really am concerned about our the planet. And I wanted my children to grow up in a healthy environment. So essentially, it's your existential climate dread. Well, yes, but also my optimism and my hope, because I've seen a small group of people, I've seen a small community come together to make this happen. And that seems like a great note to end on. Thank you so much to Krista Drew, Westenson, Beth Chapman, John Portnoy, and Del Rowe for their time. My full interview with John can be found on the WOMR website under podcasts. Thank you so much for listening.